Welcome to the second class of the spring 2016 visor term. Uh, everything that takes place here does so on a voluntary basis. It's a completely volunteer economy um, because it's imperative to us that visor be an autonomous para-academic project wherein people feel free to speak about wherever the conversation takes them. Um, it's also imperative to us that uh, this be an inclusive, accessible space uh, so uh, people who are behaving in an obtrusively sexist, racist, uh, or homophobic fashion will be asked to leave. Next week, uh, Alessandra Santos uh, will be talking about uh, contemporary currents in new media studies. She has a very exciting talk planned. Um, the subsequent week after that, uh, Ilinka Irashku uh, will be talking about uh, Lacanian understandings of the Freudian uncanny, uh, and so on and so forth, all the way through to the end of May. We've got an amazing roster lined up. Um, I just wanted to uh, pause and thank uh, Jonathan, Jonah, Alex, and Alex uh, for all the hard work they've done. Uh, as I mentioned, this is a volunteer project. No money changes hands. Um, so making this happen comes down to just you know, finding the people who are willing to put in the elbow grease. And there's a lot of that. So I just wanted to acknowledge all the hard work that they've done. Um, as many of you know, our organizing theme this term is fantasy, ideology, and media. Um, and uh, when I read my prodigious uh, UBC classmate over here's uh, dissertation, I thought it would make for a great component of the term. He's going to be talking about uh, the literary canon of supposedly great works that uh, literary studies would have us believe we're supposed to be reading in order to be competent literary scholars. And he has some very unique optics on that ideology. So uh, please join me in welcoming Donato Mancini. Thanks. Um, we're just going to make sure the, uh, the audio is working here. I'm testing, testing the sound a bit, so I don't want to make it difficult to follow just because I'm booming or something. Does that all sound good? Am I... Yeah? Good? Okay, so... Um, and if, if somehow it shifts sideways, um, we'll probably pause to, to fix the sound if necessary. Um, so thanks a lot to, to Visor for inviting me. Um, I'm really happy to be able to present this work publicly. Um, I think a lot of, uh, I mean, I mean, it, this, it, this does come out of doctoral work, and a lot of people never really get a chance to, to present their doctoral work uh, publicly, so that's, uh, that alone is actually like, quite exciting to already move it to, to a kind of public place uh, so soon after I finished. Um, also, happy first day of summer. Um, My talk, um, as you may have read, is called Paracanonic Activities, which is the name of the, the whole big task, the whole big whale that I just spent six years eating. Um, and the, the um, what I'm doing is essentially giving you a, a, kind of, uh, a kind of walk through the introduction in a certain way. The introduction is actually called Myth Canon and its Afterimage. So it's really about uh, mythologies of canon and canonicity um, that, uh, that, that is really centered on thinking about the literary canons, but actually has big application, I think, in art history in general in a broad way. Um, and it'll be a mix of, of kind of anecdote, talk, chat, um, you know, completely, uh, I think, unfair uh, 
unfair jabs at various figures. Um, and I'll also read a little bit um, from, the, from the text, because I think, I think with the, ter- the, the dominant term in this, um, paracanonic, it's easy to apprehend, and it's easy to easy, sorry. It's easy to misapprehend what I actually mean by that, because of the very things that I'm going to be talking about. These kinds of mythologies of of canon and canonicity, um, and the only way to I think to keep that to keep those misapprehensions at bay is actually to to demonstrate as much as I can how how particular and in a certain way how flexible the the kind of model that I'm trying to build is for this socio-historical literary phenomenon that I'm calling uh, paracanonic activities. Um, so I'll go back to what's actually the, the beginning of the whole project back in 2007 when my brain first opened the file on what I came to call, later to call the, um, the paracanonic. I was working, uh, I was working actually as a, as a TA at SFU for, for a Shakespearean, just doing like a, um, early, an early Shakespeare course. And, uh, like many Shakespeareans, this, uh, this professor, while he was doing his own doctoral work, was facing that problem of finding new things to write about. So when you're writing about someone who's actually literally had thousands of books written about them, it can be like a, a hard task to find some, some new perspective. And he noticed this one, that one of the plays, uh, Titus Andronicus, barely had anything published on it. And so he'd said to his own supervisor at one point, what about Titus? And he got this retort, we don't talk about Titus. And this is something I'll see. This, this really struck me. I think you can understand that this is, this is pretty interesting. This is not just the text being obscure. It's not just the text being marginal. It's not just even just being bad or something. There's some kind of really interesting thing happening there uh, related to anxiety, paranoia, um, related to uh, the, the sense of kind of the return of the repressed or something um, that, is, that is other than just these kinds of modes of, uh, of say, mar- marginality that we might might have thought about, we might have already thought about a lot more. Um, so with this beginning, I just gradually added to this file. I don't think it sh- at first I was entirely sure precisely what the file was about. Um, but, you know, intermittently things would come along that would seem to be pertinent to th- this gathering that I was, that I was doing somewhat uh, just uh, ad hoc at first. And, and one of them actually relates to the ore gallery, so it's kind of appropriate that I'm speaking here. Um, around the same time, uh, I heard a rumor that I can no longer, no longer able to substantiate that, that an artist presented a work in the ore gallery, the old space of the ore gallery, um, called the Library of Unread Books. And what this artist had, had done is actually just ask all of her friends to donate books they'd purchased but never read. And so the exhibition, the piece actually ex- as exhibited, so this rumor or this false memory tells me, um, was just a shelf of these books in the gallery. And I still think that's a great idea, but I can't find any documentation that it ever happened, so I don't know if I made it up. Uh, and I think, as you'll understand as I, as I get into this, it's very appropriate that one of my key pieces of evidence is possibly something that I just imagined. Um, still, though, together, together with the sense of worry and everything around Titus that is just so, still to me so extraordinary, um, and with this, this sense of like that, that kind of command that might lead you to you know, to, to buy a book but not actually to read it. So you feel the command, right, the canonic command that you're going to go out and you have to, you have, to sh- have some kind of familiarity with this thing. You're, you're going to spend the 40 bucks on it or whatever, or maybe 10 or whatever, but you, you're not also going to follow through with reading it. There's something, something really interesting happening there. Um, and so now it was per- perhaps possible for, for me to more 
actively look for evidence, and I still not quite sure what I'm looking for. Just started like snooping people's bookshelves, you know. I think that was actually where it actually began. And in this part of the process, I actually discovered more than once uh, a copy of Finnegan's Wake on the shelf, right beside a copy of Ulysses. And what I noticed several times, Ulysses, and sometimes the whole little group of uh, of, of uh, Joyce's main texts, but. Uh, what I noticed more than, more than once was that the Ulysses was totally untouched. Its spine was uncracked, right? I don't know if it was actually ever in cellophane, but I imagine it is this, this mint copy of, of, Ulysses, of Finnegan's Wake right beside this like beaten, like well-read, coffee-stained, peanut butter-smeared uh, copy of Ulysses and, and you know, the well-read and, and loved copies of the other books as well. And to me, that... Th- that's probably where this this um, this analogy of the para canon in terms of para as alongside probably came from because I, I, I encountered this multiple times. Literally, there was this unread book that someone had felt commanded to buy but not commanded to read, right beside, right alongside this actually like actively negotiated, read, enjoyed, sort of experienced part of this this canon that is the Joyce canon. Um, but I also noticed something else that was very particular about this example, and that's how slim Joyce's shelf space is, considering his prominence in narratives of of literary history. Um, And what's particular about that, I think, and I think you can imagine counterexamples, is that this freaky, like, amazing, uh, possibly likable, possibly impossible to like book, Finnegan's Wake, if, if Joyce had published 40 books rather than seven, um, it would be very easy to just shuttle that book off to some other part, right? Just put it on the third shelf, the fourth shelf, never buy it, never bother about it, right? Because there might be a group of texts that you could comfortably deal with that were more comfortable to deal with that you could assemble as kind of the core texts and you could you could ignore it more easily. But there's something about the limited scope of his actual output and also all kinds of things about the history of, of that book in itself that makes it impossible to just push this book aside. It makes it impossible to just not think of that book. Any time that his name is evoked, that book is going to be evoked, at least as a, as a kind of ghost, even if what you're thinking about is, is, is Ulysses, um, right? So, so at this point, it really felt, um, I think I'd, I'd found something real. And I can't say that I precisely knew yet even what I'd found, but I did have a word for it, and that's important. Um, and the key distinction here, as I've said already, is between, you may say, might say, like other modes of marginality and obscurity or like even cult statuses of books, right? Um, and this other thing that like is impossible to just shuff, shuff off, is possible at least for a certain period to just ignore or to keep on the back shelf. Um, and I'll definitely come back to this quite a bit throughout this talk. Um, but I began building a list of texts and still just snooping people's bookshelves, but doing all kinds of things, looking through um, anthologies of anomalous texts, weird texts, um, uh, looking at different canons, right? Because canons is like a plural idea at this point, and it definitely is for me. It's always plural. Um, looking at different canons and how the texts in different canons even relate to each other and just start to see constellations of different canons in relation to each other, um, but looking at all kinds of all kinds of lists, looking at people's uh, even people's um, uh, field lists for their uh, uh, for their graduate work, um, but also just having conversations with people. And this is perhaps even more important because I think a lot of a lot of the thing about a project like this, um, one of the challenges is that. Uh, sometimes the kind of reputation of a text, like what I said about Titus, that kind of anxiety that was creating created um, for texts 
by authors less prominent than, than Shakespeare, perhaps, that, all that kind of activity, all that kind of that, that anxiety might be completely undocumented. It might be, in a way, the most important thing about the reception of that text, but it might have never reached the, the physical archival record. There might be nowhere where you could go to, to cite that, right? So it's something that you only learn by being very much in the field, talking to people, the sort of the water cooler, the talk in the hallways during the conference, right? Rather than what's going on in the main hall of the conference. Um, and so I used conversation as an active way of, of finding these things, and I, I just dropped the term into the conversation, and people would often jump right on it and would be actually very, very quick to start using it. And sometimes I found the term would even be almost like taken from me. So I was beginning to develop a kind of uh, definition of the term, but um, sometimes people would actually disagree with that, and they'd actually pull it from me, and they'd tell me that I was using the word that I'd invented wrong, which I found very interesting. But it also usually led to people giving me their own nominations. And that, that told me, that gave me confidence that there was a kind of intuitive correctness about the term and that it, further confidence that I actually found something. Um, because people would nominate something. And I, uh, gradually through th this process as well, I found about 120 books that I was going to, you know, had a, a list of a text to explore as possible instantiations of this thing. Um, and... Uh, you know, some of the ones that I just got through talking to people are still among the main examples that I would list and do list in the, in the, the final work that I actually did. Um, in other cases, things I realized that there was nothing particularly special about them. They were just marginal or they were just, they were just grotesque. So, so maybe I put some, some texts on there just because I was possibly interested in them and hadn't got around to reading them yet or just because they were kind of marginal texts. But I couldn't find any other special relationship other than that they weren't read by very many people or that they were, the, they were among these many texts that flow through sort of the footnotes of literary histories, right? And it seemed to me like, given the example of Titus and given the example of, of, of the wake, that the paracanonic was actually something more particular than that. More, and then that, that kind of insistence is actually more important. Uh, more important than anything else. Um, so I had to I had to ask myself, as anyone must, what kind of work that I was going to summon this term to do. What ter what work was going to was I going to summon the, the term paracanonic to actually do? Um, and it resolved it resolved better as a actually came towards what became the title of the work, which is Paracanonic Activities. Um, when I began to be able to see it as a, kind of, um, as a kind of site of agitation, as a kind of activeness, as, as, as a kind of murmur or a hubbub around a text, it actually became a lot clearer to me um, how I could make this work given a model of canons that has many canons, that doesn't see canons as, as stable or fixed or anything like that. Um, but also also to get over the problem that it seems to imply that I'm making some kind of evaluative judgment of my own of these texts when I list them, right? I don't actually write about most of these texts because I like them. I like some of them. Some of them are actually among my favorite texts, but quite a few of them, including my favorite, my main example, Titus, is not a text that I like. It's just the example of how it played out in history is incredibly interesting to me. What I actually like is the activity around Titus. That's what gets me excited. I don't find the play all that interesting. Um, and that's really important. I'm not judging the texts, really, by writing about them so much. Although, 
it's impossible to avoid that implication that you're making a judgment by spending the time and spending the, the, the ink on a particular text. Um, but the, the idea definitely had to be nudged away from that. Um, it also had to be nudged, as I've said, to, towards this uh, kind of concept of canon that's plural, right? So I can see this is related to interrelations between different canons, not only as some monolithic, like, single literary canon that, that you might imagine through looking at, like, a, a school curriculum or something. Um, and this, this ultimately brings me to, to think about canons in, uh, in relation to uh, kinds of mythologies or ideologies of canon. Um, a lot of you are probably familiar with the, the, the 1957 uh, text by Roland Barthes, The Mythologies, um, and it's, it's surprisingly good at, at helping me get, it was surprisingly useful at helping me get traction with this um, because all of, the, all of the basic features, I think, of, of canon mythology, of the mythologies around canon, are actually well articulated throughout his book, not so much in the latter uh, theorization of his position, but in the, in the specific examples that he gives, the specific readings that he gives of his texts. Um, uh, uh, just to recap, uh, in case you're not familiar with that, um, the naturalization of canons as facts, right? That they're essentially there, unmovable, that they're, they're, they're stable. Um, the, conf uh, the confusion of subject and object, the projection of permanence and transcendence, uh, tautological reasoning, um, coercive uni universal universalization of a dominant subject position, right? Quantifications of qualities, the privation of history, the dehistoricization, of these processes that produce canons, um, commanded identification, right? Um, Ex-nomination, all that thing, like removing the, the kind of naming being removed so that it recedes to this point of, uh, of a kind of common sense of things that just go without saying, right? So when you, uh, you experience that, the, the, when you experience that sense of certainty and just like uh, almost reassurance, um, that such and such canonic figure is just, yes, of course, part of what we know as great literature. That's the example. That kind of, anytime there's that kind of move uh, so that it just seems like a natural, obvious fact is, a kind, is, is, is what Barth names as um, ex-nomination. But with respect to canons, um, I, find, I found really, really specific inflections of each of these things. Um, one is, and... One very important one is that, that canons ultimately present themselves as, as what I call uh, objects of belief. And that's to take a term from uh, Jacques Lacan, the object of desire, and to just shift it slightly. Um, when I say object of belief, what I mean is I think that in the, the encounter with canons, um, especially if you imagine this t encounter is taking place in a kind of pedagogical setting um, with all the hierarchies, all the, all the kind of obfuscations, all the all the sort of drama and panic that that, that entails or that, that implies. If you imagine this, this, this encounter is taking place in the scene of pedagogy, um, the canon, and I, I, I bring forth a lot of evidence for this in, in my actual introduction, the canon seems to present itself as the thing which you lack. So it, it more or less inscribes a lack into this potential reader, and it tells you that it's the only thing that can fill this lack. It's an abusive relationship. Um, but there's also kind of an amnesiac kind of presentism, right? There's a sense, and you tr I, could, I trace this through lots and lots of different writings about canon. There's always this sense that recurs that whatever form these canons take now is 
is a result of a process that was essentially infallible that led to this moment, right? And that what we know now is somehow what we've also always known. Um, there's also the problem of monumentality, which comes back again and again and again. And many of us will be familiar with the way that articulating or telling history through, a, through, through monuments and through, the, through, through a succession of monuments distorts how history is told, right? It, it erases so many other social processes uh, in a way that it favors um, attention on the monument rather than the, the social processes that actually that, that go into constituting the monument. Uh, and, and, and tellings of history, particularly literary history, can be profoundly distorted by this. Um, there's also the, the, uh, the mythology of inexhaustibility. And with inexhaustibility, canonic texts are constructed as having this... Uh, this, this quality of inexhaustibility. We can reread them again and again and again with, and always find new meanings there. And that's not, not true. It's definitely true, but it's actually true of all language. And what happens in canonic mythology is that this quality of essentially all language gets appropriated and it gets, um, it gets, it gets conflated with, with these objects. And, and it essentially, the mythology essentially tells us that these are the only linguistic objects that have that quality of inexhaustibility. Um, when in fact, even the tiniest pieces of language, like a phrase like dig it, um, is almost as inexhaustible as like a Shakespeare play or something, right? Because each time something like that is said, there are tiny oscillations in the social atmosphere. Uh, language is continuing to develop. The situation has changed. Who's saying it, when it's being said, right? That's, that's inexhaustibility. You actually can't exhaust even the meaning of a phrase that sounds as banal as dig it. Um, and also, you can't possibly understand it except in a specific con context, in a specific instance of uttering. Um, canon mythology takes that, in that sense of inexhaustibility and it essentially tells us that the only texts, the only pieces of language that possess this are, you know, Hamlet and, and Ulysses and, and these, these sort of like great vast texts. Um, but it also, another, another myth of canon is actually that canons are unified and homogenous. And this one plays in a lot of different directions. Whether you're critical of canon or whether you're actually actively supporting canon, uh, the closer you get to canons and reading their texts, the less you find that this supposed and legendary unity and monolithicness that they have is actually true. If you start to read the texts that you've been told um, from a great distance are, are just there to help you um, you know, become a better soul, a better citizen, or whatever, you discover that they're actually a lot stranger, a lot more fugitive, a lot weirder, and way less homogenous than possible. What's required is the intercession of a, of a pedagogical figure or a critical figure in order to make it seem like those, those texts are speaking those, those messages, right? So all that stuff happens at the level of intervention. It's very, very little of that is actually traceable back to the, to the supposed source texts. Um, and there's also, with canon speak and canon mythology, a kind of uh, center, margin, oblivion, uh, trialectic, you know, rather than a dialectic. And this you'll be familiar with, too, because it comes back again and again and again. And, and you find it, you find these light traces of it everywhere as a kind of common sense about what it means for a text to be uh, canonized and remembered by future generations. Um, canonized works are talked about as if uh, it, in a way that implies that any non-canonic work is basically sunk in the ocean, that it never existed, it never even entered history, right? And so 
you can, you can see histories of, of texts that in their own moment were read very widely and even had a huge social impact. A couple generations, they're not read anymore, and people thinking about canon will talk about those works as if they basically never existed. You know, as if there's... So the canon kind of spatializes this sense of, of the literary to imply that there's basically the center, which is the canon, and then there's the margins, and those are, you know, articulated in different ways, but generally is kind of like stable and sterile, kind of like dead zones. And then there's everything else. There's just a cliff. There's just oblivion. There's like the deep waters outside of Cannon Island, right? Um, one of the examples that you see all the time is like the desert island problem. What books would I read on a desert island? And that always implies all kinds of weird things, but one of them is that just all the waters around desert, desert island are full of forgotten books. Um, <laughs> And the, 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 the canon margin or center margin oblivion or, or, or center margin nowhere at all trialectic feeds directly into something that um, I think is perhaps more pertinent to literary cultures than to uh, visual arts cultures, which is the behaviors that you see all over the place with, with critics, with writers themselves, um, that turn the, the whole activity of literature in, in some ways into a kind of death cult. Uh, and that sounds like a very harsh thing to say in a certain way, but there's a, you can, I, can, I can marshal a, a lot of evidence that there's this strange orientation and strangely constant orientation in new literary production towards an imagining of what will happen, how you'll be read, etc., after you're dead. So rather than speaking to other people, rather than it being something that happens in a room, in a space, in a social sphere, you're imagining those people who are going to read you after you're gone. And that, to me, smacks of death cultishness. And these are all the kind of mythologies of the literary to which the, the pericanonic is pertinent. Um, and the main argument that I make is that the more mystified a canon is, the more subject it is to the kinds of perturbations of the pericanonic, like the one that I mentioned going on with, with Titus. And so you think of Titus, that's a part of the canon of the sort of hero god of English literature. Um, if Shakespeare wasn't so central, if Shakespeare wasn't basically the, the, the idea upon which the entire idea of literature is often hooked and hung from, Titus wouldn't cause people to basically bust a gasket when it was mentioned. It doesn't anymore. It's shifted status now, but for as long as 300 years it actually was like that and actually produced those kinds of effects. Um, so in articulating the pericanonic, the first thing I... The, the, my main task, I had, to pull, I had to pull away from these kinds of mythologies because in naming them, I'm not saying that I'm not susceptible to them, right? Because they're the common senses. The, the whole way in which like literature and the idea of the literary is, is articulated is constantly dependent... <laughs> On these, on these mythologies. So I had to pull away and try to see them uh, and to emphasize, instead of the, the sense of permanence and unchangeability, but to, to really see these things as constantly negotiated and constantly uh, in change and, 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 uh, and still playing out. So that the pericanonic, rather than like a stable position, which is, you know, it's, it's, it's all too easy to imagine that, uh, that it's just like there's the canon and then there's the pericanon, like the second thing. That's not what I'm talking about. Instead, I'm thinking about a kind of episodic agitation rather than a fixed position. Um, and in some cases, as with Titus, as with other examples I have, like the satyricon of uh, Petronius Arbiter um, or with Rabelais, 
um, this perturbation actually lasts for centuries. Um, in other cases, and in most cases that I've found, it lasts a generation or less. Um, and in, um, in, the, in that sense, this kind of perturbation is often like the first, like the beginning of a kind of process of something happening. Like maybe a work's going to be canonized, maybe it's going to end up just in the, in the, in the waters around the island, um, or, whether, or maybe it's going to end up in a kind of stably marginal position. Um, but this can always be reactivated because the history continues to unfold. Um, but one point to keep in mind clearly is that the problems of category that arise when, when canon is that issue and when canons are being formed, the problems of categorization uh, don't always produce that kind of uh, th that kind of agitation. It's not like just because a, pro a, a text is hard to categorize that it produces those levels of, of kind of worry and, and paranoia and strange activity. Um, but I think that by thinking about it as an activity, a kind of episodic agitation, uh, I'm able to resolve what seemed at first like apparent contradictions in what this was. Um, First of all, that it seems ubiquitous, that it seems like whenever canon is at stake, there is some kind of paracanonic agitation. So it's everywhere, and yet the episodes are generally pretty short. And the other, the other side of this contradiction, um, which no longer seems like a contradiction, is that some texts like Titus, like Satyricon, like Rabelais, seem to function this way for so long, but there's so few of those texts. There's not many that have actually held that kind of attention for long enough to really hold it across many, many generations. Um, so the, the few examples that I have found and put forward with a certain confidence are actually kind of rare. Um, and now I'm going to read a little bit. I hope that's all right. I'm going to read an excerpt. And I go, this, this goes over some of the ideas that I went over in a slightly different form. So hopefully um, it'll help... Uh, help take away the shape, at least, of what I'm, what I'm thinking about. Uh, this excerpt will take me about uh, nine minutes to read. Uh, it's just a section from the essay called What the Para is Doing to the Canon. In English morphology, the prefix para is freely appended to a large number of roots, including paramedic, paramilitary, parallel, parallax, paranormal, parataxis. Each of these and other agglutinations highlights different facets in the meaning of para as beside, alongside, by the side of, attached to. The inflection of para that I wish to emphasize in paracanonic originates specifically in a common analogy to a mythic canon as an ideal or idealized and yet organically coherent body, an assembly of monumental parts which form, open quote, an ideal order among themselves, complete before the new work arrives, end quote. A canon is encountered first in the scene of the classroom as a list, mysterious, reified, gnomic in its parts, and yet implicitly colossal in its totality. Such lists are, open quote, held together by the most arbitrary of syntaxes because they bring together any number of items without making clear their interrelations. Lists can bespeak a leveling syntax, and the longer the list, the more likely its items will be treated as an amorphous, potentially uniform mass, end quote. Canon as list here is congruent with this canon body an, an, uh, analogy as a kind of Frankensteinian assemblage of beautiful parts. 
um, the latter of which may originate in representational forms of canon that are found in martial and religious settings. So friezes, statues, uh, luminous images. I'm thinking of churches. I'm thinking of like even... Like if you, I, I'm, you know, raised Catholic, so I have the always the, the, the imago of the, the Catholic Church in mind as a representation of canon. So the statues, the the uh, the friezes, the um, the stained glass windows. These are images of canon, and I think they, um, I think this is the origin of some of these analogies. Um, a frieze is a frozen parade. It's a list or petrified parade, I guess I might say. Um, I first encountered an explicit use of the canon as body analogy in Robert Graves and Laura Riding Jackson's A Survey of Modernist Poetry from 1927. Here Graves and Jackson write that, open quote, the poetry of E.E. E. Cummings is clearly more important as a sign of local irritation on the poetic body than as a model for a new tradition, my emphasis. The implications here are that the tradition has an ideal historical trajectory with certain predictable and hindsight and therefore correct outcomes in poetic composition. The poetic body is organic. It is natural, like the animal body in its elegant coherence. In this teleology, errant modernisms like Cummings' concrete poetry are presented as an insoluble dilemma for a preferred historical narrative. In other words, the canon... The canonic poetic body itself has an ideal form, but it also has an actual infection. Whether that body is imagined to be of marble, bronze, muscular flesh, or some more angelic substance, this canon body is, let's say, bedeviled with tough little infections of worry or doubt that I call pericanonic activity. During the 18th century and through the 19th century, the very period during which a literary field dependent on an idea of canon cohered out of tendencies traceable back to the 4th century, para was used in medical terminology in precisely this way. Inflammation around a joint was parasynovitis. Inflammation around or beside the bladder was parasystitis. At this stage, para had also already been used to imply an indigestibility, an irreducibility. Chemistry had the term... uh, it's hard to see with this light, menispermine, to denote an insoluble residue resulting from the extraction of menispermine from moonseed. The pericanonic then, like these, inherits some qualities of its host or semantic root, but does so only partially, unsuccessfully, incompletely. It is also, as in parasite, attached or related to its host and yet ungovernable by that host. Sometimes it is a danger. In several of the instances of the pericanonic that are considered in this study, this ambivalent relation to the host, dependent and co-substantial and yet aberrant, engenders a, an insistent, unignorable lapse or flaw. Um, to revisit the former analogy, such an infection has to be treated or it risks spreading to more of the body. It risks becoming a model for a new tradition. Similarly, an error left unattended may multiply, or the effects of an untreated injury can compound. So Aimé Césaire's pericanonic corps perdu, lost body, would reclaim the African black open-ended and collective ancestral body of the people that Mikhail Bakhtin discovers in the popular medieval world in delirious expectation of the marked but restored whole and promised body evoked by Houston Baker. As Baker writes... What occurs with the appearance of the African body in canonical promise, as a canonical promise is neither 
a dismantling nor a replacement. What occurs is rather an emergence through suppressing forms and exclusive rhetorics of, of that which is, in the truest possible sense, emergent, demanding immediate action. Paracanonic activity is distinguished from other marginalities or problematics or alterities precisely by this itching demand. The laughter of flaw, sorry, the laugh of straw in their steel, as Amy Césaire has it. It is, not the, it is not a state of obscurity or neglect. During episodes of paracanonic activity, texts function as anti-emblems of privileged aesthetic discourse of privileged aesthetic certainty, metonymic of the great unread, or of the whole range of exclusions, literary and historical, that are the actual social cost of canonic value. The more mystified the canon in question, the more susceptible it will be to paracanonic perturbation. In a fully post-canonic literary field, the effect of paracanonicity will only persist as a trace of the past. Of canons and of the social effects embedded in them, Geriatri Spivak writes, Geriatri Spivak asks, what subject effects were systematically effaced and trained to efface themselves so that a canonic norm might emerge? Literary canon formation is seen to work within a much broader network of successful epistemic violence. Epistemic violence is a symbolic dimension of corporal systemic violence. So, in defensive cloaking of the historical constitutions of literary value, the canon is made to speak in such a way that it appears to answer its own critiques. Myth canon, note, is mute. It needs its agents to speak on its behalf. The white and heterosexual and bourgeois canon answers, there isn't enough existing excellent literature by, written by X group. Or of course it would be canonic because a canon represents trans-historical aesthetic excellence. By no means are the canon's gates locked, it says. The right sort of newcomers are always welcome. This is precisely the answer given in the form of the programmatically obtuse question to Jane Tompkins when she works to bring forward uncanonized texts by women. The question being, but is it any good? What Tompkins reports is an inverted version of what can be called the third world Proust question asked by Saul Bellow. Bellow inadvertently voices Myth Cannon's segregationist norm when he asks, who is the Tolstoy of the Zulus, the Proust of the Papuans? I'd be glad to read them. However, contra the myth or after image of canon as an ideal order, shaped but unblemished by history, canons are always and have always been haunted at one stage or another by their hidden costs. As Houston Baker writes, the marked or inscribed African body is a trace, a figure in the weave that always haunts a European system of the natural. To the extent that a canon appears as a system of the natural and as an emblem that encodes a set of social norms and values, pericanonic activity at what Jeanette calls the thresholds of interpretation undermines such historically and politically evacuated value claims. Paracanonic activity interrupts, delays, or makes painful the appropriation of texts for explicit formulation of implicit, read, ideological norms and values. Um, so, moving on to a couple of examples, um, a couple more examples, and I'll, I'll read another section in just a moment here, but 
I want to give you some sense of the scope of the examples that I actually bring forward of these, of these sort of episodes. Um, and give you a sense of how each is actually very particular and distinguished from the others. Um, the more that I... The more that I, uh, that I went into this work, the more that I came to think that um, telling the stories of these texts has to be approached in, a, in a, an incredibly meticulous way, almost as if they're each a biography to tell on its own, right? I can't, and I wouldn't want to, and I certainly haven't tried to resolve this into a formula of what causes things to you know, behave or become active, active pericanonically. And it's also that you never know what kind of social forces and, and historical factors are going to come together to, to create this kind of stir around a text. Um, and I constantly think of the around the text because in some cases it's, it's going on within the text, but generally it's, it, it's, it's a social effect that the texts are having. Um, so one set of examples, and this, these are ones that I, that I actually had early on in the process, are like these, these texts that go a little too far. They're in, they're in say, like the, it's a bit like Titus. It's, it's a bit like Titus. Um, each author's corpus, if it's extensive enough, will tend to have, you know, these embarrassing moments, these kinds of texts that go too far in one direction, or there's an embarrassing politics at work or something like that. Um, and in some cases, and again, I'm not saying in all cases, in some cases, when there's a recuperation going on, when canon suddenly becomes at stake, those embarrassing moments, those texts too far, the really bad book or the, or the really, really anti-Semite book or something like that, can become an embarrassment that has to be managed and contained. Um, two examples that I have in mind are, are in the, uh, come from the, the sort of canonization by uh, American uh, liberals of South American communists. So you have Pablo Neruda um, with his Let the Woodcutter Awaken, which is his actual like ode to Stalin, um, that's in his Canto, uh, Canto General, his, one of his main works, the, the, this long poem, the, the general canto. Um, if, and this, this, this chafes pretty badly against the, the construction of Neruda as a kind of you know, big, like, South American uncle, this, like, just generous and, and, and sort of um, large kind of, kind of humanist um, that, you find, that you might find or you might plausibly find in his text, like his odes to his socks and his odes to everyday things. But you have to always square that against his ode to Stalin. Um, and again, if, if it wasn't in one of his central works, if it was some pamphlet that he wrote as a teenager, it might it might never have come into issue, but because it's right there in the center of one of his central works, it constantly has to come back to and it has to be addressed. And generally, the, uh, the strategy is, is a kind of isolation or quarantine, like to extend the kind of infection metaphor that I was using. Um, similar, uh, similarly, a different kind of Marxist, uh, Cesar Vallejo, the Peruvian poet, um, writes a whole, whole range of books that are, are plausibly, again, um, recuperated or recovered for a kind of humanist literary canon in, in, uh, in America. I mean, imagine the scene of his canonization as New York for some reason. Um, but he wrote one novel, exactly one novel, that's a full-on radical communist novel called El Tungsteno, Tungsten. Um, and the, the containment strategy for this, because if you, want, if you want Vallejo's book, The Poemas Humanos, to just be this kind of non-partisan humanist, humanist text, rather than the a markedly and avowedly Marxist humanist text that, that it actually is, uh, 
Vallejo never actually abandoned Marxism in any way. Um, if you want it to, to function that way, you have to somehow isolate Tungsteno. And so the critical work around Tungsteno is just to call it wooden, artless propaganda. He was just you know, prostituting his art because he was broke or whatever. Um, and again, you, you, speaking of how myth canon changes and dissolves actually, actually, as you actually get closer to the text, I'd heard all this about Tungsten before I actually read it, right? Of course, and I went in assuming I was going to read this, this Ayn Randian uh, this kind of Ayn Randian novel that was just like formulaically laying down uh, dogmas. And I actually think it's an incredibly funny, atmospheric, like playful little novel. I don't think it's any of these things that I'm told that it is, but, but there it is. And, and, and the containment strategy is to warn you, to essentially warn you away from it by telling you that it's not worth your time to read. Um, other examples would be, uh, could be, can be found in the work of someone like H.P. Lovecraft, He's a good example because for a long, long time, Lovecraft was extremely popular in a way that um, canon was not really at issue, right? His works were published by like Del Rey and like sort of like teenage boy sort of uh, publishing houses. But at a certain point, a kind of pressure arises, partly through the, partly through the way that actually like um, literary canons actually have opened up to what was formerly called popular literature. Um, but all kinds of other pressures have, have contributed to this so that when canonicity actually suddenly become, c- comes to be at stake for Lovecraft, right? When, when, when suddenly it's like Lovecraft's going to be installed beside Poe, all of the racism in Lovecraft and all the anecdotes about Lovecraft's like active and like aberrant racism and the way that the racism actually infuses the work goes from being just a kind of something you just look over or just like... Um, or something that you just like explain away as like his his weak moments or something like that to be, to being an active problem, something you really really have to deal with, right? So it's only when canonicity actually becomes a stake, becomes an issue that it becomes these texts like uh, Lovecraft's um, story, which is usually the one that's brought forward the um, the horror at Red Hook, it becomes a big problem. And now, like the phase we're in right now with 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 readings of Lovecraft. Anyone who writes a serious essay on Lovecraft has to take a paragraph at least to address the issue of racism, and that's a big change. You wouldn't have had to do so 15 years ago, 20 years ago. Um, And there's lots and lots of other examples, um, but I would like to read one uh, one of the examples from the introduction that I develop at a certain, uh, in a certain detail, and it I, I choose it partly because it relates so closely to the, um, to the section that I read uh, and to Houston Baker's thought of the um, ideas about the promised body. Um, and I hope this will show you how, how particular and specific my idea of this paracanonic actually is. As I think really, really in, in each case... Um, things add up so delicately and so contingently. If like one major factor was removed, there just wouldn't have been an episode. Just something else would have happened. The text just would have been forgotten or marginalized uh, or canonized. Um, so this, this section is about uh, Aimé Césaire, the Martinican poet. The section is called Solar Throat Slashed. And this will take about eight minutes to read, and then we'll turn it to questions. Martinique poet and politician Aimé Césaire is canonic. He has a plaque in the French pantheon, 
and the airport of Fort de France is named after him. At least 30 books have been published about both the life and the poetics of Césaire. His life and work have been the subject of numerous dissertations, conferences, and many scholarly and vernacular articles. In certain constructions, Césaire is even a saint-like figure with apocryphal legends attached to his name. M. Nagal has claimed that since child, from childhood, in effect, a certain timidity accompanied by a stutter tormented Césaire. Césaire's stutter, so the legend goes, was miraculously cured by a visit to the island of Haiti. Um, and quoting A. James Arnold, upon encountering unselfconscious awareness of being Creole, Césaire ceased to stutter and became a formidable orator in French. But a dilemma haunts much of this commentary regarding the paradoxical crossing between Césaire's double life as a poet, statesman, and political theorist. That may be a triple life, but... Um, Soleil Coucoupé, Solar Throat Slashed, Aimé Césaire's third book of poetry follows immediately on another collection that evokes violent revolutionary struggle in its title, um, The Miraculous Weapons. Until recently, Soleil had been most often read in the form of its extensively revised second edition, retitled Cadastre, which is, means register, in Cadastre, um, 29 of 72 poems are suppressed. Those that are retained are edited, and there's a suppression of as many as two-thirds of their lines, and titles are changed, etc. And clearly this results in a totally new text. To account for Césaire's compulsive revisions of Soleil and of other works, such as when the dogs um, and the dogs were silent, of which there's at least two full-length published versions, and his uh, Notebook of a Return to the Native Land, his most famous poems, his most famous poem, of which there's at least four published versions. Um, a. James Arnold, uh, Pierre Laforgue, Clayton Nashleman, and Annette Smith all point to misalignments between Césaire's poetics of committedly excessive, grotesque, neo-Gothic, and anti-rational marronage which means the ecstatic flight of the escaped slave, uh, versus his practical commitments as the mayor of Fort de France. He was mayor of Fort de France from uh, 1945 to 2001. And between those things and his role as theorist of negritude and of decolonization. Although Césaire would claim that his writings and political work are dialectically related as merely two levels of action, his canonization as a political figure and as a Pelean or volcanic poet progress along different, entirely separate trajectories to the extent that the interval, the gap, becomes problematic. Césaire's gothic or necropastoral poetry of revelations of we know not what, of the unknown and the perhaps unknowable, does not in any way, in any obvious way, meet the needs of a diasporic African and black readership of his essays and plays for greater clarity in concrete political struggles. Indeed, as Arnold writes, when black African writers comment on the political impact of Césaire's work, his, his plays and the discourse on colonialism are most frequently cited, not his deliriously laughing poetry. Césaire's case, like each of those visited in this study, exhibits a mass of necessary but insufficient features, amounting to a precariously contingent whole. Although in some senses a limit case, Césaire's compares with others um, via certain discourse effects that recur across the non-exhaustive pericanonic archive that is studied here. Because these apparent patterns necessarily reflect the limits of my interests and of my reading, I must also, for now, resist articulating them into an axial order. 
However, I will risk the following broad proposal, that every pericanonic episode depends on unusually brittle alignments of specific factors, conditions, and events, without all of which there would have been no pericanonic episode. The texts would instead have been set on trajectories toward the more familiar positions and functions of uh, canonicity, of, of stable marginality, of mere obscurity, or even canonic non-events, just Canons just never at issue whatsoever, so we can't even speak of canon in a sense in relation to the text. The original Soleil, in particular, contains Césaire's most formally drastic writing. Clayton Eshleman tries to meet the extremity of its fulgurating style when he does, when he characterizes um, when he characterizes this style as a crisscrossing intersection in which metaphoric traceries create historically aware nexuses of thought and experience, jagged solidarity, apocalyptic surgery, and solar dynamite. That's, that's a pretty good way of describing it. I don't know if you can describe it any more clearly than that. Um, in revising Soleil, Césaire massively eliminated the dense animistic fervor as well as the heat of its ambivalences about reason, discourse, and his own privileged social position. These had been manifest in excessively violent and sometimes misogynist imagery in Soleil and in the mutilated metaphor filet or strung out, spun out metaphors or the metaphor medusante, which is medusing metaphor. If you imagine the analogy of, uh, of a metaphor that both writhes like the snakes on Medusa's head and also kind of turns the reader to stone. Um, that's, yeah, that's his analogy, yeah. To dialectical thought, there is no necessarily necessary contradiction between such a poetics and Césaire's practices as a public servant, postcolonial theorist, and playwright. As David Harvey writes, in dialectical thinking, subject and object are not regarded as independent uh, entities, but as relationships one to the other. Um, acting on the, the external world and changing it, humanity at the same time changes its own nature. Ideas are therefore regarded as social relations through which society can be structured and restructured. But, but canons, mythical ones, are anti-dialectical. Césaire's new public role, already tending towards his monumentalization, long before his death in 2008, demanded a unity and clarity of means, if not purpose, that are metabolically hostile to the very kind of poetry in Soleil. In this view, Césaire's edits to Soleil might be seen as a paracanonic instance of certain, and this is to go back to that Spivak quote of earlier, certain subject effects being effaced and trained to efface themselves so that a canonic norm might emerge. The edits to Soleil and to Cahiers and to Chien are signatures of the kind of paracanonic activity that most often flares up in, late in the life of poets, who, like Walt Whitman or Earl Burney or even Rambeau in his Silence in Exile, revise their earlier corpus or works or selves in anticipation of posterity. If the irreducible strangeness of Soleil is initially the sign of its political and poetic rigor, ultimately, um, sorry, of its po political and poetical rigor, rigor in, uh, the and, and of the contact of inner and outer totality perceived imaginatively, to the later Césaire, the real risk of compromise to, um, to his practical political efficacy becomes far too great. In the interval, pericanonic activity. As Pierre Laforgue writes, one thing is certain, the poetry of Césaire that in this collection strive to be so profoundly anachronic in saturating history in its present 
was of, the time, was of its time threatening to cantilever the aesthetic of its author from, its political, from his political convictions. It was rife with potential for misunderstandings. Between the various ways of appropriating Césaire, each of which minimizes a different dimension of his work rather than accepting its internally dynamic totality, and with the republication in 2011 and 2013 of the revised versions of all these texts, Aimé Césaire might in the future split, as has the medieval poet François Villon, into two or more irreconcilable author functions that share a name but orbit each other on a wide eccentric ellipsis. Um, so that is the talk. And um, I've got lots more I could say, lots more examples I could bring forward, um, but it's been 50 minutes, so I'd like to turn it over to, to discussion at this point. concrete poetry example is interesting. I didn't get to go into that very much. I don't think there's an example of it killing the host, but um, I pick up on that later because concrete poetry is what they're naming when they talk about this, lo this, this local irritation on the poetic body. And concrete poetry still massively exists. It has its own canon. has its own separate universe. So there's certainly an example of, of a kind of mutant secondary tradition being, uh, being created even despite all the warnings. Uh, and I think concrete poetry still essentially acts that way uh, in relation to a kind of canon of poetry at large. And you can see, you can see evidence of that in the fact that uh, these giant omnibus anthologies will be published that are supposed to represent like all of poetry of the 20th century, and there won't be even a scratch of concrete poetry in it. Um, tells me, because it's so active and there's so much of that work out there now, that it's still a problem, it still poses a problem. So I, I don't know of an example of it killing the host, but I certainly know of an example of it breaking away from the host and creating its own body. Yeah? Okay. And then you give other examples where it's much more obviously an ideological problem that we have this vision of this, this author that we need to maintain to match uh, whatever the dominant ideology of humanity or literature is at this moment. But, but there's something within it, whether it's radical leftism or okay. uh, misanthropic racism that, that betrays that. But I'm wondering if that's Titus is a political problem or is it an aesthetic problem? What, what's the agitation there? That's, I mean... Well, with Titus, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's that, like, eventually this kind of sublimed Shakespeare emerges. Uh, and I still, like, from everything that I've read, which is, like, tons of material on this now, I still, I still can't confidently answer, like, why it is, like, what it is in Titus that creates that. Because it's normally what... Okay, so, so the, the, sorry, I have to go back again. The sublimed Shakespeare emerges, and for some reason, Titus... Is, is singled out as antithetical to this, right? So we've got this, this, this great, like, soaring, like, godlike 
Shakespeare who doesn't like ever change a line or whatever, right? And God can't write a bad play, uh, apparently. Um, th- that emerges. And somehow, Titus, among other pos- c- candidates, in, even in the Shakespeare corpus, I mean, you could have, you could have singled out a number of other plays to actually, you know, to be that problem in a sense. Titus is singled out. Uh, I, I still am not confident about answering that question precisely because every time I look for answers to that question, people say, oh, it's too violent or something like that, or it's too grotesque. But in the very process of answering that, um, you can, you'll know, uh, in the very process of answering that, you can see that the, the, um, the counterexamples are always present. So um, T.S. Eliot more or less answers that question in those terms, that it's too violent, too grotesque, too mean, or whatever. But then he proposes, as a model of good taste, by counterexample, the Roman playwright Seneca, who's like, it's all blood and guts. It's just, it's just constant like immolation and, and destruction and, 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 and mean, like aristocratic, petty revenge. So I actually just don't believe any of the stories that are told for why Titus is, becomes that problem. Um, but I'm, I'm just, I'm, so my attention is to tracking the event rather than precisely explaining it, because I still am not satisfied that I know. I would, I would say that there's a lot of disavowals at work, for sure, um, because of, I think in some ways in Titus, a lot of the sexist uh, and racist scripts in Shakespeare come to the, come to the, uh, to, come to the surface a little bit more but I don't think they come to the surface really that much more than they do in, say, like The Tempest, which has never been a problem in the same way, right? Like temp- The Tempest is actually one of the most hierarchical and, and, in a sense, in its implications, one of the most brutal works in that, in that canon. But it takes so long before that even becomes an issue, before that's even articulated, right? Through the whole time that people are like, oh, look, can't Titus, you know, don't even mention it. Um, and it's just like, it becomes just like a received idea that it's the worst thing ever written. Uh, during that whole time, everyone's like fawning all over the tempest. Uh, so that's and in and each case is quite different too. I don't think the issue is always the same in each case. Um, like I don't think I don't think Vallejo's communism is a problem in other places necessarily. Um, and it would depend on how 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 Marxist discourse is like framed publicly and things like that. It would depend on all, all kinds of things. so. Uh, not very much. I use the words. I use the verb. I use the verb form, sublimed. So I'm not even saying that Shakespeare is sublime, but he's made to to seem sublime, and that's the only form that I'd use it in. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, it's not. It's not in the paper. Um, partly, partly because uh, not all the. I don't think. I mean, I'm, I'm watching these things go by, and I'm thinking of them as active processes that are still underway. And the only, um, the only example that I have of, a, of an author that is really sublimed was actually Shakespeare. Is the only one I talk about. I try to find really different examples so that the the model comes out. And I think it's maybe for maybe something that I can think about further. Um, but it's yeah. Yeah, because and the, the the Cesare example is amazing. Like actually seeing an author who's because normally this happens posthumously, right? Seeing an author actually collaborate in this process, like unwillingly and with great, great ambivalence. Like he, um, you know, he had to do what he had to do, but he it's not he wasn't doing this happily and just just trying to sublime himself. But he saw this process happening and saw these contradictions arising, and he participates in in, it, in these in these uh, in these very painful ways. Uh, and I, I haven't found. Specifically, another example of that, um, except maybe the Tempest is actually an example of that. But um, somewhat in that spirit of just yep. blind versus the ability to yep. um, you do talk a little bit in the introduction about uh, the the canonization process as a kind of physical, social, intrinsically rooted in communities that, upon closer inspection, perhaps prove themselves to be. Okay. With relation to one's own self and life, um, you know, whether that, uh, there's so much that type of activity that goes on, whether that's uh, simply what you choose to read, what you choose to write yeah. about, what you choose to, um, you know, talk about online, mm -hmm. uh, what type of good reads that are still active, and, yeah. and, and there's so much of that kind of my list of my top ten, my whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I think I think people are more empowered to like. I don't think there's like quite as beholden. Like I talk about the the canon in some ways, like a as as, as in a, this idea of the canon of a kind of whole unitary, like stable single canon that we all look towards, um, as still pressing on how we, you know, do literature, how we how we do being literary, um, but it's got it's got far less hold. Like it's it, it, it's fading. Um, I'm not. I don't. I don't know if I'm sure precisely what the difference is. But if if you're just 
if you're in a position where you actually have almost, you're, you're never really asked for your consent, right? And you're just given this list of texts that you're supposed to find yourself in. Uh, and if you fail to do that, you're essentially, it's, it's, it's implied that you've actually kind of failed as a subject. Um, that's quite different than going out and finding whatever you feel like reading and putting it together. And maybe that'll, inter that'll overlap with like curricula at certain points or not. Um, I think maybe what's happening is uh, there's a potential anyways if uh, um, of this, I mean there's a potential, there's a potential of just uh, just this endless pluralization that I th actually, actually I think would be incredibly positive, you know, like um, there doesn't need to be a single canon at all, I don't think. Like little groups, you know, lists of books to come together contingently over certain themes, over certain interests, right? And they'll reemerge, and books will still live and still pass around and still move, move through space um, and find their readers. Uh, I don't think there's particularly much value in all looking in the same direction. Um, precisely how it interacts is... Uh, we're often told, I think, in the kind of mythologies of canon that the process was, was, was consenting and it was essentially like an intergenerational process of building consent. But when you, begin, when you trace the, the processes with a lot of texts, not with, not with all texts, um, it's very, very hard to find where that scene of consenting ever happened. It's very, find, it's very hard to find that scene where a bunch of readers who supposedly shared common values got together and agreed this is the book we're going to read. Because most people, it's just handed to them. Um, so there's, there's a shift and that's possibly just like a move towards a, um, a more part of the, the, the process of moving towards a more pluralized and possibly enabled like literary culture. Um, but I see resistances too, like in just the way uh, students resist resist reading the curriculum uh, and I think that's actually related as well so I hope that's yep Well, I mean, it's, you see that in a lot of places, and you see actually, like, uh, I mean, there's the Lovecraft example, which I think is really interesting because he was really the he was the example of bad writing for a long time that people went to, and he was just like beneath consideration. It was almost a joke to people, um, and I don't know if I like him or not. It's not. I mean, I write about one of his stories; just it fits with what I'm talking about, 
But it's not, I'm not writing about him as a fan. I'm just, he's interesting um, historically. Uh, but he's a very good example. And one, another kind of way of investigating this might have been to look at texts that literally shift positions in that way from being you know, popular literature or paraliterature or subliterary to being ultimately canonized. And one of the ways that actually the discourse around Titus is is actually to say that, well, Shakespeare was writing a popular play, and that's why it's so bad. The other ones are, are, are you know, are great literature, and this, is, this was his pot boiler. This was his, his, his dime store novel, or his, his penny dreadful, um, you know, bear baiting, essentially, text. So that, that's very much part of the way that these things are talked about. Um, but going back to this, this, kind of, this kind of amnesia that you constantly encounter, uh, if, I'd, if, if, if I'd said to someone, even like, you know, eight years ago, Name five, uh, you know, names five Shakespeare tragedies. Titus would not have been on that list. And now it's shifted so much that Titus usually will actually be on that list. It's something that I've actually tested. I've seen, I've seen happen. Uh, what's strange is that that process is constantly, constantly forgotten. Uh, if some of the, if the text that you're thinking about that you were sort of like, um, you were sort of dissuaded from writing about. Uh, if a few more people write about it, if its, if it's status changes, that I'm sure that very same person would almost forget that it was ever not a serious work of literature, right? Dickens went through this, right? We, we've seen, we've seen, we're seeing Lovecraft go through that. Titus apparently is an example of that, etc. Right? It's, it's very much an issue. This idea of where, um, where how how texts are ranked, and for that reason, one of the main theorists that I actually bring in is Samuel Delaney. Uh, I think he's an incredibly sophisticated theorist of. Uh, of canonicity, but he's actually a writer of sci-fi and pornography. So I think there's an incredibly interesting tension there in using him as one of my central uh, uh, sources of, 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 of thoughts, of ideas. Because yeah, it's, it's a very important and real tension. I, I see. I see that, like the um, the Bloom's canon or whatever, as just a sign of the shift. Like he's he's just backpedaling because a lot of critiques have been made of it, and there's been a kind of pluralization and fragmenting, uh, and he's just trying to reconstitute this thing really energetically. Um, he makes it like too coherent. He makes it too simple, and he's also just like very few of the books on his list are surprising. Like he might he he may well he may well as a, may as well have googled most of those texts, right? Um, and there's no way we can gauge if he actually knows them or anything. There's, a, there's, a, there's some really curious inclusions in there, but for the most part, it's exactly what you'd expect if you were to just, you know, put put your dollar in the slot, um, at a, imagining this sort of like machine that says canon on it. Um, and you put a dollar in it, and you pull the lever, and this list gets spit out. Like it's really, but it's a very interesting, interesting symptomatically too. Um, and then it shifts. Like you, you meet people who. Um, it, it, like it, how does it, it shifts into a kind of kitsch mode in a certain way. Um, and the, there's, there's a way in which almost like the idea of greatness is almost becoming like this really kitsch thing. And you see this in celebrity culture too. 
um, even with like celebrity architects, but you also see it like all over with like with how prizes how prizes function and everything. I think it's part of that it's part of that process very much um, that it itself is an effect of of, of the critiques of uh, of canonicity. Yeah. Yeah. Pardon me, sorry? Oh, um, well, I've seen lots of evidence of that um, in some cases, in some really like sort of brutally sad instances of, uh, of what seemed to be like literary suicides, like people literally um, killing themselves almost, it seems, as, as a literary performance. Um, I'm thinking of Thomas Chatterton and like DA, and the, the American, Thomas Chatterton, British uh, sort of proto-romantic poet, Thomas Chatterton, and uh, the American beat poet, uh, D.A. Levy, um, but one of the places that I take that up a, bit, a little bit is with, with respect to Artaud because Artaud actually seems to be enraged about that specific aspect of, of Ken and how it orients like all the literary activity towards a, a, like a promise that can never be fulfilled because you won't be alive to, you won't be alive to see it. Um, in terms of uh, elaborating more on that, I think... Uh, as someone who's actually, you know, participates in the literary field to an extent, like writing and publishing, uh, I think that comes to issue for me because I really believe that we'd have a much healthier literary culture if we weren't thinking about ourselves posthumously before we even begin, you know, like... Uh, uh, there seems to be something so incredibly sick in that, and that's what Artaud finds in it too. And his he he's, he comes the closest to actually saying the word paracanonic, I think, um, and that's specifically what he seems to be outraged by. And this is what actually what the theater of cruelty is about. It's like he wants a, a performance that's impossible to reproduce because in every other way it's compromised. As soon as it's reproducible, it's possibly canonizable, and as soon as it's canonizable. Uh, or reproducible, it's possibly like just something that'll that, that that'll be oriented towards a future, a, a kind of archive. Um, and he he thinks that if um, to break through the um, the incrustations of like uh, European cultural ideology, what we have to do is actually do things that are so intensely and particularly now that they're un unreproducible. And that's um, that's Artaud's solution. It's also the solution you find in certain performance art, uh, and that's actually what he means by cruelty. Uh, and rigor. So um, that's that's about all I have to say on that point. Um, there's a lot to think about. It's mostly just like a note of like real sorrow, I think, um, for me. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think it's. Yeah, well, I think it's specific enough that it does things. I mean, I, I do lay out specific enough coordinates, but that's the, I mean, that's the, the sort of game that I play in this. Like I say, what I'm going to do is lay out coordinates rather than a formula, um, and the coordinates include just enough things, I think, to make the, make the concept actually be something, and, and so that I can actually see that, use it to actually observe something that's actually happening for real. I think in literary history. Um, so it's, I think it is specific enough. It's just that um, the way in which I don't want to theorize it is that I, um, I don't want to over... I, I don't think it's possible to make it overly formulaic. Like, I don't think... Specifically, the kinds of questions that I do get are like, you know, what causes a text to become paracanonically active? And I think I can answer that very well in relation to each case that I find, but I don't think I can give very many general answers. There's maybe a few general answers I can give. Um, one thing I do notice, uh, and this is possibly like a, a further research question, I didn't, I didn't get to get into this, but um, across, I mean, across the text that I actually take up, there's a, there's, there's, there's a persistence of, um, how do I say this, sorry, this, this part I didn't read. Um, Across the text that I take, take up, there's a kind of, you might say, like an urgent relation between certain forms of oppression and exclusion and this paracanonicity, right? Um, some of the things that cycle through a lot of the examples include slavery, um, both ancient and modern, uh, pre-racial and very much racialized slavery, a colonization, sexual violence, um, in which certainly both men and women are victims, um, and the, I think the question that I need to for, like ask further with this with this project is whether um, whether the, these structuring violations at all um, whether they're actually whether what precisely they contribute to producing these paracanonic episodes right how how do the how do what specifically the the link between these kinds of structuring violations that I, I constantly revisit through the texts. Um, and the fact that the text, some of the texts that come out of them end up being paracanonically active. My, my caveat and my problem is that I can always think of counterexamples. For every Artaud who actually emerges into that place that Artaud emerges into, there's like, there are thousands of books by prisoners, by traumatized prisoners, um, that don't emerge in that way. That just are just canonically non-phenomenal. They're just, like in a sense, in the way that literary history is told, they're outside of history. So, 
I do, I, like, in my mental processes, I kept coming, coming back to the, that problem, but I could always think of counterexamples. So one of the reasons that it shifts away from trying to theorize it to instead observing it is that as soon as you think instead of just, like, the books that we know and instead think of, like, the whole archive of literature, all the, the, everything that's in the dark waters, you can, you can, for, for every example you might pull forward, you can, you can pull up a dozen, a hundred counterexamples. So all of the possible formulas that I came to, I found ultimately uh, self-erasing or self-canceling. Um, and I still sail, I still make lots of claims, I think, that, that like robustly enough, but um, one of the claims I don't make is that I can predict, right? That I could, I, I could somehow know what trajectory a text is gonna take. Because usually when I follow these biographies, you know, it goes up to a certain point and you see a couple factors come in that just change the orientation and really change the text's destiny. Um, Artaud is an example. Uh, if, he, if he hadn't been electrocuted at Rodez and if he hadn't had this incredible like, late period, uh, I think he might be a totally different author. I think his whole relationship might be actually totally different. I think he'd be, I, I think he'd be a much more minor and less, less important and less like, paracanonic author. Um, if uh, Francois Villon someone I take up quite a bit, if Villon wasn't literally like the only text we have of this t of this type from that period in Paris, uh, it would have been it might have just been nothing at all. It wouldn't have had it wouldn't have this value if 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 there weren't these like eleven poems by Villon that are supposedly written in the language of a of a criminal association that he was a part of. Uh, Villon wouldn't necessarily have this incredible power. Um, that he still has, through which um, poets will more or less declare themselves as badass for reading Villon and for associating with, with Villon to be like considered kind of badass poets. And this is the ambivalence. There is where the is one of the places that the paracanonic activity is happening. But I really don't think that without those poems, though that's just eleven poems, uh, he could he could still be summoned to that service today. Like you know, five hundred years later. Etc. So each time I just find there's just like one thing, and I really think that if it wasn't there, it just would have played out totally differently. Like the, it's kind of like um, just in our lives, you know. If you'd left the, if you'd left the, the house three minutes earlier, you would have got on the flight that crashed, you know, that sort of thing. I think in all these cases, it's like that. Thanks, Kyle. Okay. <laughs>